listeners and students of Hitler's Table Talk. The date is March 19, 2015, and we are bringing you episode 51 today. I'm Carolyn Yeager. And I'm Ray Goodwin. And how are you tonight, Ray? I think just fine. We're going to have a good uh, uh, some sections to study tonight that make mention a little bit more history and a little bit more military stuff. Yeah, great stuff. It's great stuff tonight again. You know, I wanted to let you say anything you wanted to say before we get started because I've got something I want to uh, revisit briefly from last week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, sure. Uh, what we talked about uh, Hitler's attitude to native crafts, or I did. Well, Hitler was talking about his his attitude toward crafts and handcrafted furniture and things like that. And I made some comments uh, that I thought better of, or I didn't think they were quite adequate afterwards. And that always bothers me when I feel like I missed an opportunity to say the, a better truth about it. Um, I commented that Hitler was not interested in such things, uh, but that was something of a rash statement, I think, because uh, attention and importance are given to folk art and old songs, and there was lots of singing was encouraged and so on, you know, in these uh, rural areas particularly. And that was an important way of getting the German people away from Jewish influences. And I suppose this was going on in all of the all of the NSDAP meetings, groups, and so on. So it wasn't right. just in the country. But a lot of those things might seem, some of the things they did might seem a little corny. But And Hitler himself was not interested in joining in, but I'm sure he was quite aware that this was a policy of the uh, party, and he was quite aware and approved of it, that mm-hmm. it was about uh, getting pe- the German people back to their uh, real nature. And, you know, did I, the Jewish influences came from the department stores, movie theaters, burlesque shows, education and books, magazines, and maybe even listening to radio. I don't know. I would think in the 20s they had radio, but maybe in some of the more rural areas they, they didn't have it. But in any case, whatever they were taking in, they wanted to wipe out all of that and bring them back to... The, the real German uh, traditional ways and thinking and so on. So they were, they were bringing their people back to their own creativity and simple reliance on themselves. That was the purpose. And uh, I, I think that was very important. And I think that was probably more going on more. Well, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say it was really going on in the 20s, but it was also very strong in the 30s and with all the uh, Hitler youth going on it. And the special guest present in our first section here that you're going to read was Gal Leiter Lauterbacher. And his I was reading about him. I read about him before. I had, I remembered as I was reading about him that I'd already looked him up. He was a fantastic guy. And he was especially big in organizing and, and running and managing uh, Hitler Youth. And it was even said that uh, he was the brains behind... Uh, Oh, wouldn't you know, I can't think of his name. Uh, who is the one who's so well-known for being starting out creating the Hitler Youth, Ray? You know, that National oh, Socialist gosh. who was uh, even uh, on trial in '45 and had a long prison term. I can't think of his name. But anyway, uh, he, you know, he he gets the credit for that. But uh, Lauterbacher was 
was doing a lot of that. And he also did a lot of other things. And he was a Gauleiter. He was a minister of things. He, he was in the SS. He did a lot of things. But that just kind of ties in there with, with right. what I just said. So I thought I'd, I'd mention that about him. Yeah, well, I well, think you're right, right in, mm-hmm. you know, in saying those things because several instances that we have covered in this book, uh, Hitler has always stressed how much he wished that uh, cities had more opera houses. His cities were, uh, you know, the common man needed access to museums and culture. And and, and it was highly something very, uh, he, re- he recognized the need of such things for his nation. And uh, I, I mm-hmm. think that's kind of the way you put yeah. it there that he knew that, and it, it was it meant something to to him. And and I didn't think anything uh, you said last uh, week was uh, flippant or anything well, like that. Well, sometimes I it. think I think back on it, and I think, well, I wasn't fair to Hitler. And I think sometimes I I take uh, too critical of an attitude, or maybe I think maybe I feel like you know, I need to be, we need to be more critical or something. So I try I find things, but I really like you said so many times, there's really very little, when I think it through, that there's very little to ever criticize Hitler over. But I will say that, you know, during the 20s, the, the Germany was still totally in the Weimar period. Yes. And also, really until he, well, large part of the 30s. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, early 30s. So that's when this was necessary to counteract the the Jewish influence, the Jewish culture that was everywhere. So, um, yeah, it's important. Sure. Well, this is, I'm looking forward to this. You know, he's going to talk about shock some tonight. And I just want to remind people that he even says here, or implies, strongly implies, that shock was a Freemason. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. That's right. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. 25th August, 1942. Special guest is Gauleiter Lauterbacher, and uh, the work of Schacht, Failure of the British Blockade, Misers and Monsters. Putting our export trade on a sound footing again was the most valuable service that Schacht has rendered us. When it is a question of a bit of sharp practice, Schacht is a pearl beyond all price. But... If he were ever called upon to show strength of character, he always failed. In these sort of deals, one Freemason will swindle another. When I dissolved Freemasonry in Germany, shocked immediately turned obstructionist. Thanks to the way in which our soldiers send home the things they amass in the occupied territories, the Wehrmacht has become a wonderful distributing agency. If we succeed in raising the ration in October, the British can abandon any hope they had of starving us out. They have always cherished the hope that they would not have much difficulty, as in the First World War, of cutting us off from the rest of the world. But now, after Norway, the Channel Islands, and with their difficulties in the Far East, they have to sing a different tune. The war leader who takes no risks gains no prize. In the years immediately following our assumption of power, many people were of the opinion that inflation was inevitable. The only ones who appreciated our policy were the workmen. For years I had been telling them, your wages can only rise in proportion to the increase in your productivity. 
the less money a man has, the more common sense he shows. The richest people are the least reasonable, and some are so stupid that they become misers. This tendency is generally corrected by the sons who fling the money away with both hands. For this reason, we must see to it that the gaming tables are not done away with. Casinos are, mar are marvelous institutions, and we must say to everyone with too much money, Come on, you people, come and gamble. The whole of life is one perpetual hazard, and birth is the greatest hazard of them all. Every parent knows that his son is the most intelligent baby born, even after the first week. One tells that, of course, from the child's weight. <laughs> so. That's one of the Hitler's favorite things, or you know, among many, many things that he says, uh, you know, throws in here and there in his conversation, mm -hmm. if it comes up, that every parent knows that their child is the most intelligent child in the world. Um, sure. You know, and uh, a lightheartedness uh, yeah. uh, thrown out there. Yeah. Well, who knows where it came from? But you know, this, sometimes you know, this Heinrich Heim, he chops things up, and we we jump from one subject to another with no yeah no preparation. But that's that's what happened here. Um, yeah. See, he's happy with those casinos. They're making money. And he figures. Oh yeah. I forget now. I, I don't think about that very often, but they did allow some to be established in the Reich, and uh, because you know, I guess if people want to do that, uh, somebody sure. the, the Reich made money on it. So cheaper made to be shared, I guess as the old saying goes. Right. Uh, bring bring your money and uh, get to the tables. <laughs> you know, one thing in this section that jumped at me, Carolyn, was uh, when he said, if we succeed in raising the ration in October, the British can abandon any hope they had of starving us out. Uh, I think most of our listeners would be familiar with uh, World War One and how the British blockade had such a strangulation effect on Germany and, and their food supplies, not just military supplies, but primarily food. And by the end of that war, uh, I mean, many, many people were starving, and uh, the damn British kept that blockade going for months and months after the war was over, and the uh, American soldiers returning home were bringing tales of starvation back home, and the Red Cross and other charitable organizations made huge efforts to send food packages to Germany, because a lot of them had relatives there, and they felt like the war is over. Uh, you know, hey, these people are in bad shape over there, so they shipped tons of food over there, and the British stopped those from being delivered. And uh, over 800,000 German children died as a result of that damn British blockade that they kept in place months and months after the war was yeah, over. Yeah, and you know, that's, that's mentioned, but does, does Britain really have a black eye from something like that? No. No, because no, I guess have. I guess because the media only concentrates on the things they want to, and not on things that uh, are against their people. That's right. Uh, oh. And uh, anyway, there was a wonderful article about that blockade in a in a, an issue around uh, let's see, two thousand and one, maybe when I was teaching at the college. There was a great article about it in uh, the Barnes Review. 
And uh, I made copies of that and distributed it to my students as an assigned reading. And it was brought out in that article that the primary movers behind uh, that food not getting to the people were Jewish. <laughs> yes. And I, I tell you what, I, I asked my students to read it and please write a response uh, and not to what the author said, but I want to know what you think about what he said. And I was so pleased that so many of them wrote. They, they read it, they picked up on it, and they said things like, you know, uh, I never heard of this, but knowing this, you kind of understand why a lot of Germans had no use for Jews. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I felt like it was a positive thing that my students got to read that, and ordinarily they would never have known a thing about it. But anyway, I just want to mention yeah. that, but when I saw that uh, the hope that England had of starving Germany. Well, just think what we could do if we had a whole lot of teachers like you, Ray, all over the countries, uh, you uh -huh. know, in the schools. Oh, really? It would be totally yeah. different. I appreciate um, that, but, uh, you know, you're not allowed to say things like that uh, because well, the powers that be will uh, make sure you're not getting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. But, uh, okay, we'll go to 26th of August, 1942, in the evening. Oh, I've got a timeline. I've got some timelines. I'm oh, sorry. good. Go I ahead. I here looking at them, and then I don't even think about saying it. The 23rd. There was a massive German air raid on Stalingrad. Okay, so they, they don't say a whole lot here until they probably get into the defeat part because, you know, they never in this, they never want to say positive things about the German efforts and so on. But that was the, on the 23rd. On the 24th, the naval battle of the Eastern Solomons, the USS Enterprise is badly damaged and the Japanese lose one light carrier, the Ryuho, uh, Ryuho. And on the 26th, which is the day we're going to be reading, that was the Battle of Milne Bay began. Japanese forces land and launch a full-scale assault on Australian base near the eastern tip of New Guinea. On Well, on whatever base it was. So there we go. They're still fighting away okay. there. And the beginning of Stalingrad attack. Uh, okay. 26th August. 1942 evening, special guest, Grand Admiral Rader. The fidgety bureaucrats. Italy saps our moral courage. Switzerland, a pimple on the face of Europe. The Swedish vermin. Remedies against high blood pressure. Industrialization of Russia. British strategy. The peace of Westphalia and the modern Germany. Pride without power. The Dieppe Raid, Lines of Communication in Russia. Bureaucrats are often prone to take away all the joys of life from the people. When the soldiers bring something home with them from the Eastern Front, it means an additional 250 or 300,000 parcels, a very welcome addition to the home. It is absurd to say that they should be stopped. On the contrary, I think every soldier ought to be encouraged to bring something every time he comes home. I recently spoke at some length on the subject of our system of justice and of the reforms to be introduced regarding the training and activities of legislators. The individual must be given more latitude and be taught to cultivate a sense of responsibility and a readiness to accept it. There is today no valid reason for making peace with the French. 
we should never succeed in keeping their army down to a strength from which within three years they would not be in a position to smash the Italians. For that matter, the Paris police are capable of that by themselves. And so we must always be on hand to help the Italians. What neither the campaigns of Poland, nor Norway, France, Russia, nor the desert have succeeded in doing, the Italians are on the point of accomplishing. They are ruining the nerves of our soldiers. The greatest victories in the history of the world have always been the result of a mighty effort. Life consists of the overcoming of a series of crises, which one man survives and the other does not. In 1918, victory was as nearly in our grasp as it was in that of our adversaries. It was a battle of nerves. No one has a monopoly of success. Frederick the Great is the nearest thing to an exception. To what should one ascribe his success? Foolhardiness or what? Frankly, I do not know. The cards were stacked against him, and Prussia was a miserably poor little state. Nevertheless, he ventured forth with incredible temerity. On what, I wonder, did he base his faith in victory? If we compare our present situation with his, the comparison will make us feel ashamed, even if we count the Italians as only half an ally. The War of 1866 was a singularly bold venture. Ranged against her, Prussia had not only the other German states, but France as well and Austria into the bargain. Austria alone, a far mightier nation at that time than Prussia. There's one very curious thing to note in all this. It is that the side on which Italy is invariably wins. A state like Switzerland, which is nothing but a pimple on the face of Europe, cannot be allowed to continue. The touchiness of the Italians comes from an inferiority complex. It is the touchiness of a people with a guilty conscience. Geographically, we shall never dominate the Mediterranean, but the French will certainly never be given the chance to do so, particularly after the peace treaty which we shall impose on them. It is to be hoped that one day we will achieve complete hegemony in Europe. As for the Swedish vermin, they must be swept away like the Danish vermin in 1848. We must not take everything on our own shoulders. If we did, our successors would have nothing to do but sleep. We must leave them some problems to solve and the means with which to solve them, namely a mighty army and a mighty air force. And the army must be taught that if some cowardly crew of politicians should come to power, then it's the army's duty to intervene, as the army in Japan did. As, as a general principle, I think that a peace which lasts for more than 25 years is harmful to a nation. Peoples, like individuals, sometimes need regenerating by a little bloodletting. Our ancestors fought duels. Next came the barber and his bleeding cups. And now we have the safety razor. Nobody in the Middle Ages suffered from high blood pressure. Their constant brawls were ample safeguard against it, and in Upper Bavaria they practiced the custom of Sunday bloodletting. Now, thanks to the safety razor, the world's blood pressure is rising. It fills me with shame when I think that I have lost more blood shaving than on the field of battle. If Stalin had been given... Hey, hey, Ray, Ray let's, let's stop here.
And talk about this part, because this is such a long section. Good. I yeah, thought you would agree. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, and uh, so yeah. uh, he's talking about Frederick the Great and then the curious thing about Italy being always on the uh, invariably on the winning side. Uh, and I think that was more of a, uh, a kind of a, a satirical slap at Italy because, uh, you know, he's already previously said about their lack of military prowess and and uh, they're like half an ally or whatever. But uh, anyway... Uh, but yet he said, he said in the past that... Uh, or Italians are more like Germans in, in, in our way of thinking. We're more alike than any other country in Europe for us or something like that. And uh, yes. he really likes the Italians, and he loves Italy. Yeah. And he loves the he loved being there. He loves the the uh, culture. He loves the Roman stuff and so on. He made no statement uh, because he admired their culture. He admired their wonderful history of the Roman Empire, and, and uh, so, you know, so well, he didn't hate yeah. the United States. No, no, but. no, but I think that now it was becoming clear that the Italians were not really coming through. Like, you know, just yes. think about the way America was an ally for England, say, you know, I mean, yeah. all the help they gave, and, and they communicated. They were communicating right. all the time. I mean, Hitler tried to communicate with with Mussolini, and he liked Mussolini so much, and everything would go fine. But he did say that later Mussolini would do things on his own, without, check, you know, without uh, checking in, or you might say, uh, probably knowing that uh, Germany would say no, don't do that. But he wanted to do it, so he went ahead and did it, and that that was a problem uh, because yeah. a lot of what he did then didn't succeed. And this caused uh, Germany to have to come in and uh, and clean the whole thing up. So Bail them out. He, was, he was feeling this now, and he was using right. some different kind of language. But at the same sure. time, he says uh, we have to always be on hand to help the Italians because he saw them as natural allies with Germany and uh, didn't see them as uh, ever being enemies. But now what happened... And he said that, I think he was sincere when he said, well, look, you know, the funny thing is, Italians are always on the winning side, so maybe that was, he was thinking that was a good omen. But then later, the Italians switched, you know, switched and uh, went went to the Allies, and then, so it still remained true that they were on the winning side, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and then also, with the uh, part where he said, you need a strong army and an air force, and the army must be taught that if some cowardly crew of politicians should come to power, then it's the army's duty to intervene, as the army in Japan did. And that's exactly what happened in Japan uh, The uh, when the United States was twisting the screws trying to make uh, Japan attack us to get us into the war because of the bait thrown at Germany, shooting at submarines and things that had not worked. And they were... Uh, uh, enacting embargoes against Japan under the table, not letting the American people know it, and trying to force them into a fight and telling them, get out of China and whatever. And the Japanese politicians, there was a, a, a coterie of them that wanted to just, okay, okay, let's don't make the United States mad. Let's let's agree to the, the let's go ahead and start pulling some troops out of China, or, or let's... Uh, go easy on taking these Dutch uh, oil fields in the in Indonesia 
and let, maybe if we back off a little bit, the United States will leave us alone. And there was a set of politicians that were uh, mouthing that sort of talk, and the military uh, high command stepped in and said, uh, shut up, you're not talking about the best interest of our country. We cannot continue to be bullied by the United States. And so that's what he said. You know, the Army should step in when cowardly politicians come to power, uh, as they did in Japan. Mm -hmm. And then this this fact about the uh, safety razor, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I read over that a couple of times because I thought, well, it's kind of entertaining here. And he talks about high blood pressure uh, in the Middle Ages was unheard of uh, because mm -hmm. people, uh, you know, had uh, duels, and then they have the the barber with his bleeding cups. Uh, a lot of illnesses were taught. Uh, with bleeding, uh, were, were treated with, with bleeding. Well, I thought he was he just says, talking there about cutting yourself while you're shaving. Yes, you're well, having that's true. That's what blood. I, I don't think it has see? anything to do with bleeding people, doctors bleeding people for their illnesses. I don't think that helped anybody. Well, no, it didn't. Certainly it didn't, but... No. He said, he said uh, nobody in the Middle Ages suffered from high blood pressure right, and their brawls. Right, right, and they because they're coming. always uh, fighting and, you know, were yeah, open and, and brawls then he said and so in, on. In Upper Bavaria, they practiced the custom of Sunday bloodletting, and now, thanks to the safety razor, the world's blood pressure is well, rising. Well, I think that was about shaving, too. Yes, it was. They, it they was shaved because on Sunday, yeah. What he, what he meant was... The safety razor uh, is something that will keep you from cutting yourself. And mm -hmm. because we aren't cutting ourselves and bleeding, then there's an awful lot of high blood pressure going on here. So uh, that's the way I took it. Yeah. Well, that, that was razor, clear, but he was, he was talking about the shaving. And uh, he, yeah. he just, I don't know how serious he was about all that. But um, the uh, what I liked when he said here, Ray, and just uh, the second paragraph is the second sentence. The individual must be given more latitude and be taught to cultivate a sense of responsibility and a readiness to accept it. Now, you know, he he and he says I was talking recently about our system of justice. And remember, we had that long section That's about right. that. And here he's still thinking about it, and he he brought this up then, and now he's bringing it up. Even more straightforwardly, it seems to me, I don't remember from before, yes, but yes. That, um, that he doesn't want Germans to be, they need to get out of some of that uh, bureaucratic correctness and, and just following the rules and following orders and not taking responsibility for it. Because, well, I have to do this because this is what it says, or this is what, you know, what the, my superior said, this is what my order is, say, in the military, and uh, yeah, you have to you have to follow that, but he wants people, he wants Germans to have more uh, well more latitude to make decisions yes, that they think are right. better. And he's pushing a little bit of individuality here. And in, you that's know, that's exactly right. He's pushing leadership. Socialism. It is leadership. That's right. And the, yes. the and, reputation and, and, of know, national I, socialism with so many people is that no, well, nobody was an individual. They're all just little robots. Um, but that and, and that Hitler wanted everybody to just do what he said, you know, and not ever question anything. Well, I was talking about that on Monday, but uh, he didn't want that. And here's a, here's an example of where he's where he's saying that. Yes, and and uh, I think another important point is National Socialism stressed the value of the individual's talent, and certainly not his uh, bloodline or who his parents were. 
and uh, you know they were they always wanted to be uh, 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 shown to use initiative and take responsibility for what happens and that was as important as that was in peacetime it's doubly important with a war going on uh, you, mm-hmm. you don't you can't suffer these idiots idiot, idiotic bureaucrat uh, baloney things that go on and and so I, I can readily see why he mentioned it again because well, it's he was more having a right problem. Now. Yeah, there was a problem which was starting to develop, or they were starting to recognize it. And Himmler talked about it in this uh, speech that's recently been translated, which is very enlightening. And Hitler talked about it in that Flatterhoff talk in uh, 1944. That, but now it's 1942. But they're already seeing that a lot of these officers don't want to take responsibility. So he was now seeing that this was not good, and this was not working too well, and so he was starting to push for this. And it came out in a lot of places and in a lot of ways, and we see it right here in August 1942. He's bringing it up right. in the, at the table conversation. So this was this is like a trend right. that's, that's starting. Uh, and okay. then, you know, it's, 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 that life consists of the overcoming of a series of crises. These are things I think that he uh, came to when he was dealing with uh, all the difficulties that he had and the difficulties in the war and the problems that came up. And he had to overcome feeling uh, that, my God, you know, this is just impossible. <laughs> you know, he didn't want to be defeated. They were fighting defeatism. And uh, you can't be defeated. You can't give up and say, oh, well, we're, we can't win. This is not going to work. Look, look at what's happening. Uh, so he's coming up with this, his his philosophy that life consists of the overcoming of crises. And it's true. That, that really is true. Uh, you can't right. ever sit back. You're not going to be in a position to sit back and say, well, we've accomplished all this. Now we can rest and relax from now on. It never, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. So maybe if you retire, you can do that and let somebody else take over. But nobody sure. was going to take over from him. So he came, comes up with this, and he's probably, you know, telling himself these things uh, in order to work, build up his uh, his will and his energy to keep going and, you know, get get over these little slumps of maybe being uh, slightly depressed about it. I'm, I'm not. Right. You know, I, and, he's, and it's only human, you know. So this is how sure. he does it. And the part of the yeah. paragraph where I think he, he hits the nail on the head with that was where he says, we must not take everything on our own shoulders. And he meant everybody at that particular time. He says, if we did, then our successors would have mm-hmm. nothing to do but sleep. we right. got to leave them some problems to solve and the means with which to solve them. And uh, so, you know, he said, hey, uh, there's no use in us trying to cure every ill uh, in the world mm-hmm. right now. We we can handle what we can and, and pass on to our successors things that they're going to have to do. Right. I also want to comment on the Switzerland thing. You know, I think that he didn't, he said Switzerland is nothing but a pimple <laughs> on the face of Europe. Yeah. I think that he didn't, he doesn't, didn't like Switzerland because, well, one thing, they are all pacifists there. And the other right. is that he doesn't like multilingual and multinational states, which Switzerland was. And I think that's what, why he, uh, that, that's my interpretation of why he says it can't be allowed to continue. That he doesn't, uh, you, he doesn't want states like that that are mixed so that they don't have a clear 
Well, the only clear uh, path that Switzerland has was to be wealthy and to remain out of all wars and, and everything, you know, not take any sides, be neutral. He didn't like that. I wonder, That's what he hates. I wonder if some of his feelings on that line had anything to do with the uh, Swiss, Swiss being the bankers of the world, so to speak. And uh, story. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I said. They're interested in money. I mean, that's what the that's what the Swiss are really. Now he also though said called the Swedish vermin, but he was. I'm sure he wasn't speaking about every Swede, but there's some some click there, and uh, and the Danish vermin (laughs) from the first uh, uh, in 1848. That was the first Schleswig War that uh, the Danish won, and then later they, uh, Frederick the Great won a lot of that back. You know, he thinks these people don't have the right attitude, I think is what he means by all this. Right. And they don't. They didn't. No. But, well, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, then we'll move on. If Stalin had been given another 10 or 15 years, Russia would have become the mightiest state in the world and two or three centuries would have been required to bring about a change. It is a unique phenomenon. He has raised the standard of living. Of that, there's no doubt. No one in Russia goes hungry anymore. They have built factories where a couple of years ago only unloaned villages existed, and factories, mark you, as big as the Hermann Goring works. They have built railways that are not even on our maps. In Germany, we start quarreling about fares before we start building the line. I've read a book on Stalin. I must admit, he is a tremendous personality, an ascetic who took the whole of that gigantic country firmly in his iron grasp. But when he claims that Russia is a socialist state, he's a liar. Russia is the very personification of the capitalist state, and there's no other capitalist state in the world like it. A population of 200 millions, iron, manganese, nickel, oil, petrol, everything one could desire in limitless quantities and all belonging to the state. And at the head of it, a man who says, do you think the loss of 13 million lives is too great a price to pay for the realization of a great idea? Poland would have been overrun, and Germany, too, with her 100,000-man army in the wink of an eye. In Paris itself, they hoisted the red flag. Europe has got away with it by a miracle, and with a black eye. Europe has once before had a similar lucky escape. At the Battle of Leignitz, Leignitz, the Hungarians, how goodness only knows, stopped the Mongol hordes. Whether it was the losses they suffered in the battle or or the death of Genghis Khan in Mongolia that caused the Mongols to retreat, we shall never know. British strategy is founded on hesitancy and fear. If the fools had but gone on, once they had been cleared out of Greece, they could have marched straight on to Tripoli and taken the place. Instead, they chose that very moment to call a halt without the slightest reason. It is a classic example of a lack of imagination and orderly thinking. And why this desperate desire to take Salonika? Was it because they were less anxious to bomb us and wanted instead to attack some Italian town each night? For us, things are much more simple. 
for in most cases we have no choice. In the East, if I don't attack, the Russians will gain the initiative. We have constantly faced the danger of being annihilated. On the third day of the Russian campaign, the issue hung by a thread. If we had not taken the most audacious risks, even to the extent of putting our paratroopers before even our own artillery had ceased to shell the landing grounds on which they were to land, the whole campaign might well have been jeopardized. When one knows that there's no alternative but to advance, the problem simplifies itself enormously. In any case, we cannot very well retire out of Europe, can we? To keep the cowardly on the right path, I was compelled to say to him, If you retire, you'll be shot. If you go forward, at least you have a chance of survival. We were obliged to shoot a few hundred conscientious objectors, but after that, that example, we had no more. In 1914, the British faced the mighty Germany and survived. This time, they faced, as they thought from the tales of the immigrants whom they believed, the Germany of the Weimar impotence. The Germans, too, once possessed that sense of insular security, which is such a source of strength to the British. At one time, they could with justice claim that all Western Europe identified itself with the German state. It was the Peace of Westphalia, which was the foundation of the permanent weakness of modern Germany. I have always said to my supporters, it is not the Treaty of Versailles we must destroy, but the Treaty of Westphalia. The French, of course, regarded the Versailles Treaty as just a continuation of the Westphalian peace. Now, I want to stop right there for a second on that. Mm -hmm. uh, just The Treaty of Westphalia was signed in 1648 and ended the Thirty Years' War, which was one hell of a bloodbath. Uh, and uh, in that war, it was pro primarily Protestant against Catholics, uh, the Holy Roman Empire against France, the German princes against the emperor, and then each other, uh, each prince fighting the other one. And it was from that treaty that France gained most of Alsace-Lorraine and other concessions. And I, I think that had kind of stuck in the crawl uh, of a lot of Germans. And, and it, in fact, it must have because of the way Hitler brings it out right here. Uh, hey, you know what? The Peace of Westphalia is the one that sent... Uh, permanently weakened uh, Germany, and, uh, you know, he says it's not the Treaty of Versailles we must destroy, but the Treaty of mm -hmm. Westphalia, because I think a lot of that was a mindset, uh, not just a, an incident in history, but it was a mindset, but anyway, I just wanted to, uh, to say yeah, well, that. do you have anything? Yeah, since you stopped here, let's go and do this section, because there's quite, quite a bit more yet that changes okay. a little bit. So uh, I think that it's very, very important what he says here about Stalin. And, uh, you know, he's, he has developed a uh, real respect for Stalin. In the beginning, right. he was talking about Stalin as just another dummy or something. You know, he didn't, he didn't have any respect for him. But he, what, he has learned the kind of uh, war machine that the Russians have and all due to Stalin and all that he is, he, that he's been busy building all that up, and they had the Germans didn't have any idea about it, and now they're having to, to face it and deal with it. And uh, so he he's not saying good things, you would say, but he's certainly giving him credit for all that he's done. That's right. And um, that's very interesting. So 
he he realizes he's got a uh, tough opponent there. That's and, right. Uh, he had respect for him as an adversary, and that was a two-way <laughs> street. Uh, you probably heard, uh, Carolyn, over the years about when uh, Churchill went to Moscow for a conference with Stalin and is uh, he is supposedly has said to Stalin he called Hitler a madman and that lunatic and that madman and boy the report was that Stalin smashed his fist down on the table and said madman he said that guy is no madman you're you're calling a person a madman who has come within uh, a few miles of conquering my country and then pushed my armies back. I mean, you know, so there was that mutual kind of feeling there. They, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they uh, they admired each other as for their leadership capabilities and what they do, were doing for their country. Yeah, well, uh, Hitler still thought that Stalin was a was a barbarian beast and so sure. on. Sure. Uh, right. So he, I don't know that he admired him, but he recognized his ability and what he had accomplished, and and that uh, he was. Uh, a fierce yeah, adversary. So, uh, yeah, respect. Yeah. So, uh, and he's a, he, now he uh, is uh, seems to look for reasons to to talk down Britain, <laughs> and uh, you know, not speak so highly of the of the British as he as he sometimes does. So, he's doing a little bit of that. I don't know about these uh, events that he's. That he's talking about uh, Salonika and so on, if, if you know what actually happened. But he's he's saying that the British kind of hesitated when they shouldn't have, and then uh, yeah, and then the peace of Westphalia. So okay, now let's okay. go on to the this more good stuff here. All right, the uh, there's a a phrase here, two words to start this next uh, paragraph. Mm-hmm. It says Amour, A M O U R. P R O P R E. I think that tra- translates uh, love of pride. Well, Amor it translates to self respect. Self respect. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, that might be in the a, in literal in translation love of pride or something, but it's, yeah, pride in self, uh, high yeah. self esteem, self esteem, and uh, or self respect. Okay. Uh, and it says, amour propre, in a general sense, is a source of strength, but pride often goes before a fall. In Spain, the Castilians are as proud as kings, even when they go about in rags. That's a completely inverted type of self-esteem, which thinking Spaniards have for centuries regarded as ridiculous. The Castilian will deign to fire his rifle, but he considers it quite beneath his dignity to clean it. All this loud talk about American reserves, it's just nonsense. The only reserves that any capitalist state builds up consist of just what is required for the current year. As I see it, the most important result of the Dieppe, that's D-I-E-P-E, yeah, Dieppe. I think rate. it's just pronounced uh, Dieppe, right? Dieppe? I could okay. be wrong. It could be, maybe you sound that final E a little bit, but uh, I've only heard of it as Dieppe. Okay. A raid. The important result of that raid, from our point of view, is the immense fillip it has given to our sense of defensive security. It has shown us, above all, that the danger exists, and that means a continental invasion by the Allies, but that we are in a position to counter it. 
Less important, perhaps, but equally pleasing, is the gift the British have given us of a, a first-class collection of their latest weapons. Never before, I think, has anyone taken the trouble to cross the seas in order to present his adversary with samples of his most modern arms. It is always so much easier to decide on the specifications of a new tank, for example, when one knows beforehand the weapons it will be called upon to face. Britain enjoys one immense natural advantage. She is completely surrounded by a gigantic anti-tank ditch. Her colonies are far away from the motherland and cannot therefore dissociate themselves from it without exposing themselves to the danger of falling into the grasp of someone else. Unless we wish to remain dependent upon river traffic, with all the disadvantages that are inherent in it, we must construct a vast railway system in the eastern territories. We were wrong to have regarded the canal system as a rival of the railway. It was... It never was and never will be. A really first-class network of canals joining us up with the River Don would nevertheless be of great value. But even this would have the disadvantage that for six months in the year it would be for the most part ice-bound. All in all, there's no doubt, particularly when the immense cost of canal construction is taken into consideration, that a really comprehensive railway system is by far the more advantageous. But the Danube will one day become one of the greatest of our traffic arteries. Connected as it is with the main and the odor, it will carry goods direct into the heart of the country. Through the Black Sea and up the Danube will come iron, manganese ore, coal, oil, wheat, all in an unending stream. <coughs> Excuse me. The Black Sea territories open immense potentialities for the future. We must, we must make sure that we do not assume the role of permanent guardians of the peace in the Danube Basin, but rather that of permanent referee. And for each decision which we give, we must receive our little fee. The Viennese regard Belgrade as a species of distant suburb. Every century, they say, we have to capture the place at least three times, and each time we give it back again. So... Yeah, a little postscript there at the end, whatever that that he said. Um, yeah, what I'd like to comment on in this is just one thing maybe. Oh, I, I will say, like you probably, when we're reading this and I see some of these words, I, I think about them as German. And I think, well, how is that pronounced in German? And then I, for, I forget half the time that, uh, like, dip is a French word. It's yeah. French. And so, uh, you, you know, you don't have the same rules. And most French words, you don't pronounce the last letter or two that's just the way they do it so um i was just reminding myself of that after after you had read it um how that was that because i was thinking german <laughs> german pronunciation but um this is uh you know again his his big picture of uh how wonderful it's going to be for germany and europe when uh when all these riches uh resource riches of the of the east are made available uh, that he just loves thinking about that. That's a picture he has. That that is, uh, and you know, Himmler said in this speech that's just been translated in nineteen. It was in uh, August nineteen forty four, two years from this point in time, that that even if they had to give back all that 
Russian territory that they gained, and even if they didn't couldn't get it back again, one day, one day, they would have to go that far. Uh, but that was their system, not seeing that their party and their what they had built in Germany was going to be destroyed too. Uh, you know, seeing that they would still be there. Of course, Germany today doesn't doesn't care about things like that, or right. uh, certainly has to pretend like they don't. So, well, that's sure. all. That was I found that uh, quite interesting. Sure, and that uh, Dieppe raid. Uh, I'm I guess most people are familiar with that, but that was the mm-hmm. first attempted assault uh, on uh, Fortress Europe, as uh, it was referred to at that time, by the Allies. The British uh, sent an expedition, very, very uh, ill-advised, and they lost so many men. They lost all that equipment that Hitler's Yeah, they lost blocking. more. They, 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 yeah. they, they killed more Canadians. They sent the Canadians and had more yeah. Canadian deaths than British deaths. But... Um, it was. They said it was just a, a trial to see how what would happen. Well, it was. It didn't didn't work out well for them. But they said they didn't. You know, it was just a small thing, which it was in one in one yeah. location. But it was a surprise, and so uh, they thought they might gain something. But they left all their weapons. They had to leave tons of weapons, tanks, planes, everything right. uh, on mm-hmm. the beaches and so on. And that's what Hitler's talking about. Isn't it that uh, that they got to see all right. their latest weapons? <laughs> well, that right. was a wonderful said, uh, victory. That was a wonderful, good thing for Germany. So they like talking about that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, we'll move on to 27th of August, 1942, midday. The threat of oh, invasion. Oh, the timeline. I'm sorry. 27th. Yeah, go ahead. Marshal Marshal Georgi Zukov is appointed to the command of the Stalingrad defense. And the Luftwaffe is delivering heavy strikes on the city. So I don't know if Zukov was kind of a, a not very well known at that time, or if he he was a marshal already. So I guess I guess not. That's why he sent him there because he was one of his best generals, I suppose. That's right. Okay. That's right. The threat of invasion, Spain and the Latin bloc, naval warfare. It is essential to have a clear understanding both of the economic objective which inspires the launching of an offensive and of the economic effect it would produce if successful. My primary preoccupation was the possibility of an offensive against the Ruhr, which might have had disastrous consequences for us. At that time, I was always nervous of the occupation of Norway. Today, that would be of less consequence, for we have uh, alternative sources of supply. The mineral resources of Lorraine and the East are at our disposal, and only the problem of transportation presents itself. In the East, too, we can relieve pressure on home production by the manufacture of munitions in the Donuts Basin. In the same way, we can form out the manufacture of many things which are not of too technically complicated a nature. The steel works at Mariupol are at our disposal. During October, the power stations of Zaporozhye will be repaired, and by the 1st of December, will be in full working order. In Spain, there are two movements, the Papists, wish to see the monarchy restored and the old close ties with Great Britain renewed. Franco has evil designs on the French North African possessions. 
The phalangists aspire to Gibraltar and a good slice of the Oran province. The danger of a pan-Latin bloc disappears owing to the enormous demands which its inauguration would make on France. In the face of them, France will turn to us for protection. I must make the Duce understand that to meet a possible attempt at invasion by the British, I would much prefer to have a quiet and contented France. Were an attempt, uh, were an attempted invasion to be the sign for a general rising in France, it would be it would greatly complicate matters for us. The possibility of an Italian offensive with any chance of success does not at the moment exist. The whole of their officers' corps is much too old, and their infantry won't attack. Italy's great value is as a manufacturer of tanks, planes, and artillery, and she had better stick to that. Turning jokingly to Admiral Cronke, Cronke, in the whole war, we have not had a fight between battleships. It never entered my head to give the Navy tasks ashore. The Westerplatte, I thought to conquer with the engineers, and thereby apparently offended the Navy mightily. And so I have raised a few brigade, brigades of sailors and made the Navy responsible for the defense of the islands which they occupy. The Navy ought really to take over the responsibility for Crete. That would enable me to withdraw the land forces, of which I could make very good use elsewhere. Now, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, What do you make of that uh, last paragraph that he said to Admiral Kronka? Well, I think he felt that there was... Uh, he could sense uh, the Navy kind of felt slighted, that they weren't uh, getting as, as big a slice of the, of the, of the uh, responsibility Action. to, to mm-hmm. fight. And, except, you know, for the submarine service, my gosh, those guys were uh, overworked and then some. But like you said, there's never been a, uh, you know, a fight with <laughs> between battleships and and he said, I never thought about giving uh, my Navy people uh, a responsibility for defending land. And, uh, and I think he realized that they felt slighted. So he said, you know what, if I give these guys responsibility to fight for where they are, where they're at anchor, uh, at whatever islands they may have, and, and let them do it, it probably raised their morale as well as freeing up some uh, land forces I can use somewhere else. Uh, well, true, but you know what I think? I think he also I also pick up that um, that he, he realizes that they're maybe being underutilized. Uh, I don't think about navy personnel fighting either. You know that way on the land, but he said, right. "Gee, you know maybe they didn't have that much to do." You know, and, and whatever the situation was, and they could do it. And oh, I know the other thing I wanted to point out that I think he had a high opinion of the navy. Uh, yes, actually, the Navy did better than the Army. It was the Army that had so many failures and problems. But the Navy was uh, superb. And under uh, Admiral, uh, see, my memory for names always fails me. Dunnitz, the writer? The Dunnitz, Dunnitz, yeah. Uh, you know, was just, uh, he was just, he, he did everything right, it seems like. He was just mm-hmm. wonderful. So he had this, right. uh, all these great uh Military men in the Navy and uh, thinking, gee, I should. Uh, I, and I was, so now I wondered after reading this if that happened, if he if he put them in charge of anything or if he used them at Crete or anywhere. Do you know? 
thought I'd ask you, Ray, <laughs> since I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, you know, I, I feel like he must have. Uh, well, I would hope so. so. I hope yeah. so. It sounded good to me. Uh, <clears throat> well, okay, I guess uh, we. Sh- uh, there's not anything that needs to be said unless you want to. Uh, before yeah, you know, looking got back at that last paragraph there, uh, Carolyn, he does say, uh, apparently I offended the Navy mightily, and so I have raised a few brigades of sailors and made the Navy responsible for defending the islands which they occupy. So uh, he wouldn't have done it if he wasn't going to, uh, he, he wouldn't have taken those steps if he wasn't going to use them. So uh, mm-hmm. I think he certainly must have. <clears throat> okay, yeah, we'll and he's talking to... about the Duce again. And you oh, know yeah. this thing about uh, uh, that I know Mussolini wanted to attack the southern France. Or he wanted to take possession of southern France. Something, because you know the, uh, the Germans had the uh, upper part and the lower part was just kind of left alone as far as I mm-hmm. understand it. And he wanted to get right. get in there. And Hitler, and well, and not just Hitler, but the Germans didn't think that uh, he could handle all that, and uh, so I don't. And I think that's what they're referring to there. And he's saying that isn't this where he says it that he, yeah that Italy, the Italians are great uh, factory people, great manufacturers of yes. uh, of weaponry, and they should they should do that instead of trying to go off and conquer territories. Exactly. Yeah, but that was Mussolini. He wanted to be you know he had these. Uh, for all his good points, he had these uh, de- got these uh, delusions of grandeur, wanting to keep right. up, and take advantage of every opportunity to be a big a big hero on his own, and not let mm-hmm. Hitler uh, outshine him, because he was he was there first. Uh, you know, he, right. I had just uh, recently got it clear in my mind that Mussolini became the Duce long before Hitler became anything. That's right. So uh, you know he and 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 then he was falling behind and he didn't have he, he wasn't accomplishing all that Hitler was so that was really too bad that they they couldn't get better cooperation with Italy than they did and but there are a lot of problems that Mussolini had also right. with the church as we've talked about and the uh, em, the emperor aristocracy yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, so uh, you know you have to understand all that too, and Hitler was very understanding of that. But it's just still, sure. it was still too bad. Okay, well, we can go on now. Okay, the 28th of August, 1942, midday. Italian susceptibilities. Germany faces the Asiatic hordes. If Charles Martel had been defeated. Horthy and the Habsburgs. Budapest and Vienna. The new capital of the Reich. <clears throat> I see Siano has again been invited to come and shoot, and he's the uh, foreign minister from Italy. I think that's <coughs> what's his status. Yeah, it's, and it's Ciano. <laughs> Ciano. Okay. Ciano, yeah, Ciano. and uh, yeah. and you know, as that's you know, Italian. he's uh, he's uh, yeah, <laughs> he's uh, uh, Mussolini's uh, son-in-law, married to his daughter. Right. He was still in. So. I see Chiano has again been invited to come and shoot. I shall have to use the soft pedal in expressing my views on sport. What a light-hearted, lucky little nation they are. 
when they get a hiding, they forget all about it in a couple of days. But when they have a success, they never forget it. <laughs> That's the most delightful frame of mind that one could possibly wish for oneself. Forget all failures and magnify all successes. Chiano still speaks in no German, but the Duce is making progress. If we were to write a single article about the Italians in the same style as the Americans write about the British, the fat would be properly in the fire. The Americans are a completely unpredictable crowd. In a tight corner, the British are infinitely more courageous than they are. There's no comparison. How they have the nerve to cast aspersions on the British passes my comprehension. As regards the Russians, their powers of resistance are inimitable, as they proved in the Russo-Japanese War. This is no new characteristic which they have suddenly developed. If anything happens to Stalin, this great Asiatic country will collapse. As it was formed, so it will disintegrate. <coughs> In German history, the Reich, under the leadership of the Habsburgs, fought an unbelievably bitter war with the Turks. It continued for nearly 300 years, and had it not been for Russian intervention, the Turks would have been flung out of Europe. That was in the glorious days of Prince Eugen. Here is a lesson we should do well to learn. If we do not complete the conquest of the East utterly and irrevocably, each successive generation will have war on his hands in a greater or lesser degree. Even stupid races can accomplish something given good leadership. Genghis Khan's genius for organization was something quite unique. Only in the Roman Empire and in Spain under Arab domination has culture been a potent factor. <clears throat> under the latter, the standard of civilization attained was wholly admirable. To Spain flocked the greatest scientists, thinkers, astronomers, and mathematicians of the world, and side by side there flourished a spirit of sweet human tolerance and a sense of the purest chivalry. Then, with the advent of Christianity, came the barbarians. The chivalry of the Castilians has been inherited from the Arabs. Had Charles Martel not been victorious at Poitiers, Already, you see, the world had fallen into the hands of the Jews, so gutless a, a thing was Christianity. Then we should, in all probability, have been converted to Mohammedanism, that cult which glorifies heroism and which opens the seventh heaven to the bold warrior alone. Then the Germanic races would have conquered the world. Christianity alone prevented them from doing so. I've just read a paper according to which the Crimea is the richest country in mineral wealth in the whole world. Its foundations are composed of primeval rock, gneiss, and granite, and I did not know that there were nickel mines there also. The Russians only completed the conquest of the Crimea in the middle of the last century. How the Romanians and the Hungarians hate each other. Horthy has some astonishing ideas. Like all Hungarians, he hates the Habsburgs. Taking a wholly dispassionate view, I think it is a great pity that Horthy's son has been killed. The in <clears throat> internal stability of the country would have been much more strongly assured had he survived. The old man himself is animated by a fanatical desire to conserve his own health. 
He's a bull of a man and was without doubt the bravest man in the Austrian Navy. The Hungarian aristocracy has predominantly German blood in its veins. All the original aristocracies of Europe belong fundamentally to one single international community. I should not be surprised to see Horthy try, thanks to his hatred of the Habsburgs, to reestablish contact with Vienna. It is a characteristic of old age that, while it, its memory for past events remains phenomenal, it gradually loses the faculty of creative action. So close is the fusion between Hungary and Austria that all the Baroque one finds in the former would be equally appropriate in the latter. Rudolf von Habsburg was a real German emperor. He had the whole territory in his own right as an indispensable base for the foundation of his power. It is only during the last seven, uh, 25 years that Hungary has ceased to form a part of the eastern portion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Before that, it was always an integral part of it. The Reich must get a worthy capital. At the moment, Budapest is the most beautiful town in the world, and there's no town in the whole German Reich that can even compare with it. The Houses of Parliament, the Citadel, the Cathedral, and the Bridges seen in the shimmer of the setting sun, present a spectacle of beauty unsurpassed in the world. Vienna, too, is impressive, but it is not on a river. And all these beauties have been built by German architects. It shows one how important the construction of a capital city can be. In olden days, Buda and Pest were both a conglomeration of peasant hovels. In a single century, Budapest rose from a city of 40,000 inhabitants to a great capital with a million and a quarter citizens. With the exception of the town hall, all of the buildings in Budapest are twice the size of their equivalents in Vienna. Berlin must follow suit, and I know we shall make a magnificent city of it. Once we've got rid of the hideous expanse of water which defaces the north side of the city, we shall have a magnificent perspective stretching from the Sudbahnhof to the Triumphal Arch with the cupola of the People's Palace in the distance. Madrid, too, they tell me, is marvelously situated. <coughs> well, there he is going on about his Berlin plans. And that was the, uh, the main feature of the new Berlin uh, redesign of the city going from that Sudbahnhof, which is train station south. The train stations are yes. very important in German cities and European cities because people travel around that way. And that's where they get off, and that's what they first see. And you go from that big, they were re, rebuilding the train, the southern train station, and then you go down this big uh, avenue and you go through this huge triumphal arch, much larger than the one in Paris. And then in the distance you see that huge uh, gigantic dome of the, uh -huh. uh, calling it the People's Palace uh, in the distance. Uh, that was all in planning stage. I think there's a lot to say about this, and uh, other people have said it, but where does he say that? He says Budapest is the most beautiful city in the world, he said. Did yeah. he say that in the next one, or did he say that here? The, in um, this one we just finished. Yeah. yeah. It was right close to the end. Uh, yeah. The, the uh, second paragraph. See, I, I never, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I never uh, 
that Budapest had such a reputation for uh, beauty, but I have learned that in the last year or so. It would be great to go there. I guess it has a kind of a light, you know. And I think Prague is so uh, wonderfully beautiful because it has this light that is just the quality when you're along the river there, which all these rivers are so important, you know, to the beauty of these cities. And uh, it just creates an atmosphere that everything just is uh, so mellow and, and lovely and peaceful. Anyway... Say what you want, and while I go back to the beginning and look for what I was okay, going what, to. Okay, what struck me was his discussion of uh, when he was saying uh, the advent of Christianity came the barbarians and talked about uh, Charles Martel, you know, the mm-hmm. hammer, uh, who defeated the, the uh, Moors. Uh, and But, you know, the way that Hitler talks here, uh, had Martel not been victorious at this Portier, P-O-I-T-E-I-E-R-S, already you see the world had fallen into the hands of the Jews, so gutless a thing was Christianity. Uh, putting the two back together, had Charles Martel not been victorious at Portier, then we should in all probability have been converted to Mohammedanism rather than Christianity, or would replace Christianity. That cult which glorifies heroism and which opens the seventh heaven to the bold warrior alone, then the Germanic races would have conquered the world. Christianity alone prevented them from doing so. I found that fascinating. That's something I need to, to look up and read about because, you know, I knew about Martel, uh, they, you know, they called him the hammer, and, and uh, what a hero he has been uh, in literature uh, and uh to, to say that, uh, you know, if the guy would have just lost, then the Germanic races would have uh, become Mohammedans and would have conquered the world. Uh, well, that's, that's he said that. You know, and this is a passage that is used uh, to somehow prove that Hitler preferred Islam to Christianity and, and thought Germans should switch to Islam. But he didn't. <laughs> he really didn't. But he... He, right. he he was so critical of Christianity that he compared this favorably to what the Christians do, and he would he would compare the the heaven for warriors in Islam to what the uh, what the Christians offered. You know how often he likes to say, "Oh, well, sitting oh, yeah. uh, on a cloud and singing hallelujahs for eternity." <laughs> Nothing could be more boring. Well, he he liked to put it that way, but I, I don't. Uh, you know, if if Hitler saw Islam in Europe today, he would certainly speak differently about it. He wouldn't Absolutely. think highly of it. Exactly. it. This was the most, uh, back at that time, there were more noble types and the people stayed, you know, that's, under the thumb and so on. And uh, you could you could think highly of these, of these Muslim leaders and so on. But uh, today it's just, I don't know what. And it's, a mess, it's the Americans messing around with all of yeah. this stuff. And, you know, he takes an opportunity here again to put down the American soldier. He doesn't call him the American soldier, but he says uh, the British are infinitely more courageous than the Americans in, in a tight corner, especially. And, you know, he um, he never did say a good thing about the American military troops or the American soldier. I don't right. think he ever did. He never praised them. He he, he did the opposite. He, he uh, you know, kind of bashed them. 
at times. So. Right. Uh, and uh, then yeah, that thing about Islam—that might be about all I had too. Yeah. Well, we got a section here that's just going to fit, I think, just right. In yeah, I think so time. too. And I've got a, I've got a timeline here for the twenty eighth. Is this the twenty eighth, Ray? Because mine was yes, it is. Botched up. Yes. Okay. Good. Uh, the twenty eighth incendiary bombs are dropped by a Japanese seaplane, causing a forest fire in Oregon. Now, isn't it funny mm-hmm. that they put that in there? The Japanese seaplane dropped a few incendiaries in Oregon. I don't know anything about Actually, that. Actually, yeah, <clears throat> what they did uh, was to calculate the a time when the winds were strongly out of the west, and those planes never came over American territory, but they they dropped those oh. incendiaries in kind of parachute are also uh, in balloons uh, and they uh, let them drift let the wind carry them over the uh, you know the the uh where the sea hits, uh, yeah the, over the land and uh those forests in Oregon were quite ripe to being set afire and uh that's how they did it uh I don't think any Japanese plane ever came over American territory they they uh mm-hmm. uh did that from uh, from the sea and like from the Aleutian Islands, where they had a few of those islands uh, in their possession where they could land, uh, or maybe even aircraft carriers that had gone north like that. But uh, you know, yeah, I wonder why they did saying. that. Why did they do that? I mean, they couldn't have accomplished much to, with it. Was just a harassment it, it or was, something? It, it, well, it was a psychological thing for the Japanese to say that they were able to strike back. It, it's kind of like the uh, raid on Tokyo, uh, y- you know, by uh, uh, Doolittle, Jimmy Doolittle and his, his raiders, uh, his pilots. They didn't accomplish that much militarily, but the morale boost it gave the American people after the butt-kicking we had taken at Pearl Harbor and, and the Philippines, uh, and to send those planes over there to hit a lick back at the Japanese, even though uh, if you judged it in terms of military success, it was not a military success, but it was very psychologically uh, good for the American people because, hey, our bombers went over there, they hit those doggone Japanese, mm-hmm. um, and, and they were able to fly on into China. Uh, a lot of them died, uh, but uh, some of them made it. Uh, some were captured by the Japanese, and some were... Uh, able to make it to the Chinese lines, but well, that, I feel that sorry for those ones that were captured by the Japanese. I feel huh? sorry for those. I feel sorry oh, for yes. those pilots that were captured by the Japanese that's, <laughs> that's that they true. weren't treated too well. Well, okay, nope. uh, that's, that that answers my question. Thanks a lot. Let's let's finish this last part here. Okay, twenty eighth of August, nineteen forty two, evening. Skyscrapers, their vulnerability to air attack. Anti-aircraft defense, the new artillery weapons, learning while facing the enemy. Some German towns must be protected at all costs. Weimar, Nuremberg, Stuttgart. Factories can always be rebuilt, but works of art are irreplaceable. Multi-storied houses are reasonably safe against a direct hit from a bomb, but not against the subsequent blast. A small breeze is enough to make a skyscraper sway as much as from 40 to 80 centimeters. The depth of the foundations of some skyscrapers in New York is as much as 70 meters. 
and the driving of the cement foundation demands a pressure of six or eight thousand hundredweights. An air raid, such as those against London, would have a devastating effect on New York. It would be physically impossible to clear the debris, and it is not possible to build air raid shelters. In America, the capitalist conception based on the gold standard leads to many absurdities. If this war continues for 10 years, aircraft will all be flying at a height of 40,000 feet, and ocean-going traffic will all be submarine, and the world at large will be free to lead a pleasant existence. Fights will take place, but they will not be visible. Britain will lie in ruins. In Germany, every man and every woman will belong to an anti-aircraft crew. With an annual production of 6,000 anti-aircraft guns, every little village in Germany will soon have its own battery and its own searchlight section, and the whole Reich will be one single integrated defense unit. Blinded by the reflection of mirrors, the enemy pilots will be able to see nothing if a mirror is placed at each corner of a 500-meter square. The desired effect will be obtained. I wonder what people would have thought if I had spoken of figures of this kind before the war. The Navy has the most efficient anti-aircraft defenses. I have seen them, and the shooting was magnificent. Thirteen hits for every hundred shots. This is attributable to, principally to the fact that the Navy is taught to shoot accurately from continuously moving platforms. As a result, their total of planes shot down is colossal. The best AA or ACAC or anti-aircraft gun is the 88. The 105 has, a, has the disadvantage that it consumes too much ammunition, and the life of the barrel is very short. Reichsmarschall Goring is most anxious to continue producing the 128. This double-barreled 128 has a fantastic appearance. When one examines the 88 with the eye of a technician, one realizes that it is the most beautiful weapon yet fashioned, with the exception of the 128. With a new type of weapon, much often depends on the hands into which it is first delivered. If it comes first into clumsy and capable hands, we're very liable to write it off. We had that experience nearly with the 34 machine gun. One must never condemn a weapon because one has got, not got the hang of how to use it. The 34 machine gun fired consistently, even in the greatest cold, as soon as we found the right lubricating oil for it. The grenade throwers issued to the engineers, which were completely noiseless, were rejected time after time for one reason or another. And I must say that every time I poke my nose into a report on the subject, the reasons given for rejection seem to me to be, to say the least of it, very thin. If one restricts instruction to the essentials, one can teach a soldier all he requires to know for all practical purposes in three months. The rest he will learn gradually with experience. Under war conditions, a soldier learns more in three months than he learns in a year in peacetime. Instruction acquired in the face of the enemy cannot be bettered. So, anyway, pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, and, uh, I like I him heard... talking about those anti-aircraft guns. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and that they were going to be that... everywhere. 
Yeah, and American veterans, uh, you know, of World War II that I had talked to many years ago said that uh, nothing scared them worse than that uh, 88. And then, and then that 105 came along, and it was every bit as effective or even more. But, uh, And I had one, uh, when I was in high school, Carolyn, I had one American veteran. I was talking to him one time when he and Dad took me fishing, and uh, he wouldn't say a whole lot about the war. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable, but naturally, being a young man of 17 years old, I was quite interested. And he was on the front lines in Europe, fighting the Germans, and he's the one that said, he said, well, he said, the German soldier was extremely tough. And he said, we sometimes were able to advance only because we had superior numbers or artillery or air cover, but but he said it was tough advancing against them, but he said uh, the regular German army uh, wore gray. But he said, if you came up against a unit of those guys dressed in black, he said, you might as well camp because you're going to be there a while. He said, that was the toughest soldiers that we ever faced. And he said, you know, when you go to the movies and you see these World War II movies and you see our guys shooting a machine gun and it's going ta 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 And uh, he said, that's how ours were. But he said, you know, when the Germans fired their machine guns, he said, you didn't hear that pause between each shot. It was just like a table saw. And he said oh. their their machine guns were so much superior to ours, and uh, you know so uh, to to read about this uh, tonight kind of brought all that back to me, and I really enjoyed that. Well, I do. I like I like when when Hitler talks about uh, advancing, making advancements in weaponry. That really just turns me on, you know. And uh, I sure. I know how important that is, and how good the Germans are at that. And I'd like to read more about it if there was whole books about it if I had the time. Anyway, um, this business about if this war continues for 10 years, yeah. what he's thinking about what it will be like, boy, I know he wants it to be over. Oh, you know, there was right. something else. Oh, well, here. Also, I was wondering, Stuttgart, he says, uh, some towns must be protected at all costs. And he named uh, Weimar and Nuremberg, who, who are very uh, works of you know, old cities, works of art and so on. Weimar is where city of Goethe, and then he has yeah. Stuttgart, and I want and I thought well they had a lot of factories there and so on, but then he says exactly. factories can be rebuilt, but works of art. But I looked up Stuttgart, I didn't see any particular, you know, it being a particular art city. Of course, all cities have art, but I really wonder why he uh, mentioned that in yeah. there. Yeah, I was. Me too. I, like I to kind know. of thought that because. That to me, when I hear the uh, the German city Stuttgart mentioned, to me it was manufacturing and, and industry. But uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's just my perception from years. Right. So. Right. So that's kind of a mystery. But uh, I was interesting to me, and interesting to hear you talk about these anti-aircraft guns and uh, the information about them. I don't know why it gets me going. I think if I were if I were born a man, I would have been a, a, a warrior type. But I wouldn't have wanted yep. that in uh, in the time and place that I was born because then I would have been in the U.S. in the United States Army if I was in an army, and I wouldn't want to be there. So that's not the army I'd want to be putting all my bravery and courage into. <laughs> so, sure. well, this was a great. You know, one more thing about those eighty eight yeah. and one oh five. I saw a documentary on TV, which was actual films from back then of Rommel's campaign. 
and Montgomery uh, uh, in uh, Africa, and all the tanks they were throwing at Rommel, he was outnumbered and everything else. But boy, they they showed those 88 emplacements, uh, those guns, and they took a tremendous toll on British and American tanks. Uh, mm. They were extremely valuable. So anyway, they were. Well, I they know. Were you know, while they still had the ability, uh, their anti-aircraft was shooting down an awful lot of those planes that came over. True. The first ones, uh, the British and, and Americans, too. They, what happened was, uh, well, we'll have to talk about what happened on another time. We've got to go for tonight. We go. We're going to close out on time. And uh, thank you, uh, Ray. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we will be back next week for Episode 52. Good night. Good night, folks. Good night.